What if that nagging feeling in the back of your neck was real? What if those hands reaching out from the dark that you believed were there, were there? What if the monster in the basement really existed? And what if there was really something under the bed? Would you have the courage to face your fears? Hello, brave souls, and welcome back to Fear. In tonight's episode, we have a story called, If You See a Man with a Red Notepad, You Need to Read This as a Matter of Life and Death. This is a story written by Born Beach, and it's a wider universe story, so there's this uh, collective known as The Facility, and this is just one of the entities they have to deal with. So, without further ado, let's get into The Man with the Red Notepad. I don't know his name. I don't know his age. I don't know where he lives, and I certainly don't know how to find him. All that I know is that he's dangerous, and he's on the move. I'm a government employee. I work in a research lab that develops experimental weaponry, primarily of the biological variety. I don't want to say much more than that, as this is already at massive risk of exposing my identity. But I will say that I'm not exactly an intern. I've seen things. I've studied things. I've created things. I created him, or better put, I recreated him. Confused? I don't blame you. If you're reading this, then you're all aware of the concept of legends and mythology, things that feed on our collective imaginations to grow more powerful, that live on our tongues as we utter their names and speak their stories, growing and evolving until they become a force of their own, unstoppable, unforgettable. The man with the red notepad is one of them. I'm not positive, but I think his legend began in an email chain from the late 90s. You know the type. Forward this to 20 people in the next hour or some asshole is going to hack you to pieces with an axe. Except, his went a little differently. In his, he would find his victims and draw them. Sometimes he would draw them drowning to death. Other times he would draw them wasting away in a hospital bed. And other times he would draw them being cut open and pulled apart. It was a coin toss what version of the internet myth you'd encounter, but all of them had one thing in common. He would draw you, and you would die. The thing about the man, though, was that his sketches were thorough. It wasn't enough to simply make a stick figure labeled Sally and have that stick figure being impaled by a flagpole. No. In his sketches, Sally was a detailed work of art, with immaculate shading and perfect lines. There were exceptions to the rules, of course. Wrinkles, makeup long hair, short hair, things that would naturally change over the course of a lifetime. These never needed to be exact. As long as the core of the individual was on display, his nightmare worked its magic. As such, his sketches took hours. Sometimes they would take days. It was only after he was finished his sketches and signed them with his messy initials that the death sentence would trigger. When I received the assignment, I laughed. Give life to a legend? I remember saying to my boss, You know, April Fools was six months ago, right? She wasn't laughing, though. I remember the way she took a deep breath, straightened her blouse, and sat down in the chair across from me. I remember the steeples of her fingers, the nervous twitch at the corner of her mouth, and the smell of cheap coffee gently steaming on the table between us. Fear, she said carefully, 
is a weapon more powerful than bullets and bombs. We need that right now. That was six years ago. I've grown since then, mentally and physically. So has the man. He started life in a test tube, shapeless and helpless. Before long, though, he was walking, talking, and after much longer than that, he was killing. At first, it was prisoners. People we'd pulled back from black sites. We'd sit both of them in the lab we called the Red Room. The prisoner chained, and the man behind a plexiglass divider. He'd draw them, and they would die. Sometimes they'd catch fire. Other times they'd break out into hives, scratch their own skin bloody and flay themselves alive. Always, though, they would die. Needless to say, we didn't permit his notepad with the experiments weren't running. In the time between, he'd sit alone in a small cell, hunched over in the corner with his head down. I suppose I couldn't blame him. With only a thin mattress, a bowl to shit in and piss in, and two meals a day, there wasn't much else for him to do. We kept two cameras pointed at him in the front of the room, just in case, monitoring the man at all times. We even made sure to cycle the guards. On the off chance, he managed to coax one into becoming sympathetic. Hell, thanks to some clever genetic work on the part of my science team, he rarely even needed showers, so he was virtually always under lock and key. We took steps, is what I'm saying. Covered our bases. Despite it all, though, he escaped. I got the call last week, and when my boss broke the news, at first, I called bullshit. It wasn't possible. Nobody escaped the facility. Hell, I remember the day when it first opened when I was still a young woman with stars and stripes in my eyes and fantasies of helping my country defeat the bad guys. I remember the contractor who'd overseen the construction, a round and hairy man with breath like garlic sausage and fingers to match. He'd call the facility state-of-the-art, proudly boasting that Sherlock fucking Holmes couldn't even break out of here. And yet the man was gone. Not only was he gone, but he had left a bloodbath in his wake. All in all, there were over 10 security personnel dead. One of the guards was found outside the man's cell, her skull cracked open and brain matter gently oozing from the fracture. Another was found in the camera control room, a bottle of Drano at his side and vomit covering his chest. Another was a personal friend of mine and the head of the overnight guard detail, and he was found draped over the woman who ran the front desk, a bullet in both of their brains. It was horrifying and mystifying all at once. How could this have happened? The man's cell was entirely enclosed and didn't allow for him to see any of our personnel. The most it had was a tiny slot in the bottom that we passed food through and he passed his shit and piss through. Each week, when we would retrieve him for our experiments, we'd even dispatch personnel to scrub the room and ensure he wasn't drawing on any of the surfaces. Of course, he tried consulting the camera footage, but the cameras hadn't been disabled during his escape. There was nothing. He was just gone. A few hours after the escape, I got a call from the IT department. They'd been going back through the old footage of the man, trying to determine if there was some hint of what it was to come. They'd been going through the old footage of the man, trying to determine if there was some hint of what was to come, something that might indicate exactly what had happened. They showed me footage of the man in his cell, and it looked like the same routine I'd seen a thousand times before. He sat in the far corner with his head down, silently waiting for his next meal or bowel movement. There was the sound of a latch opening, followed by a woman's voice calling to the man for supper, and then a covered plate of food slid across the floor. The man shifted, getting up to retrieve the plate, and when he did, I saw it. A tapestry of red was written upon his flesh, detailed and intricate. 
markings covering his stomach that looked to have been carved by the edge of a fingernail. He quickly readjusted his shirt, taking care to tuck it back into his waistband. My jaw dropped into stunned silence. Can you play the footage back with your shirt up? I said quietly. But take a still capture and zoom in. The IT technician nodded and did so. That's when it all came together. The marking in the man's flesh were his escape plan. His sketches, each one an immaculate carving of the facility's guards. Each one a piece of the puzzle. One showed a guard unlocking the man's cell, then caving in his own skull with the heavy steel door. Another had a guard disabling the cameras and the swallowing drain cleaner. The last sketch was the man I knew, the head of the nighttime guard detail. I pictured him shooting and killing seven other security personnel and then turning his sidearm on himself. There was also another sketch. I didn't recognize the face as well, and my heart sank momentarily before realizing the subject of the sketch was still alive. She was a secretary in our archives, a young woman who had tragically lost her arm in a traffic collision two months ago. She hadn't been back to work yet, but I pictured her burning down the archives and all the local research we had on the man before walking into the flames herself. In the man's flesh, though, she still had two arms. My mind turned, and I realized how the man had pulled it all off. It was the time between experiments. It was during the walks we'd take to the Red Room. While he made his way along the corridors and chains, he'd catalog faces, features. He'd store them away in a memory, taking care to notice small details of their schedules. He'd grown up here, after all. Spent years in the facility. He had plenty of time to grow familiar. At first, my boss refused to believe it. She argued that he never indicated any such capability in the email chains we'd pulled his legend from, that he'd always needed his red notepad, and once he had it, he needed his subjects present to sketch them. It was, of course, our mistake to forget that legends evolve. Now that mistake has cost people their lives. I see it in the news reports. They're easy to miss if you don't know what you're looking for, but I know the man is on the move, and he's killing again. The facility and the government refused to comment on it. They refused to come clean about the things we're doing and the danger to the public it is. My boss died two days ago. The day before that, a member of my research team passed away. The day before that, the other two members died. I'd probably be dead myself if I hadn't seen the writing on the wall and taking one of my own fingers off. So now I'm taking matters in my own hands. I'm raising the alarm to you, the public. The man with the red notepad is out there. He may be sketching you. You might not see him doing it. Maybe he'll just say hello to you in passing. Maybe he'll just take a memory. But if you do catch somebody looking at you a little too carefully, or glancing your way before putting pen to paper, then it's time to run. It's time to run, and maybe leave a finger behind for good measure. You know, I really enjoyed this story, so I think with this one, we're going to continue on with this uh, facility. I think the facility is a really interesting thing. We actually had another one earlier. It was uh, Snippity Snap was one of the other ones we did, and that's part of the facility extended universe thing. And so he's got a master list of all these, and I think I'm going to go through them all because these stories are so well written and they're so interesting that... I can't help it but check them out. So if you guys enjoy the podcast, I appreciate it. If you wouldn't mind, share it with anybody you know. And uh, I'm sure your grandma would love it. 
If you'd like to share some of your own stories, you can send them over to podcastfear at gmail.com. That's podcastfear at gmail.com, and I'll showcase your story in one of the future episodes. I appreciate you sticking around and getting scared with me, and until next time, folks, remember to always face your fears.